Hello and welcome to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, where today it was 34 degrees with 90% humidity and not one case of COVID in the whole state. Uh, I am joined today by my uh, friend and colleague from uh, the University of Vienna in Austria, uh, Andreas Kirschbaumer. And I'd like to welcome you, Andreas, and thank you very much for giving up your time. And we're talking about a paper that was in uh, RMD Open and that was recently published uh, in June of, sorry, accepted and published June, August of this year. And it's talking about a major collaboration from a bunch of people that Andre is going to tell us all about who put together a paper that's evidence-based once physicians have decided that they're going to use a genus kinase inhibitor, then what they should be aware of, know about, understand, monitor, screen, side effects to look for, uh, for those treatments across the immune-mediated diseases. And this was based on a systemic, sorry, systematic literature research, which Andreas did. So congratulations, Andreas, for the amount of work you must have put in to put this together. So can you tell us first a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing in Vienna and the department that you're in and what their research interests are? Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Um, so I am from Vienna and we're working at the Medical University of Vienna. Um, I am part of the team of Professor Adetaha and Professor Smolin, and um, we're working actually on, so once Daniel called it, um, we do basic science in clinical science. So we look for effects in clinical trials and the way clinical trials are done, which may affect the outcomes on clinical trials in rheumatology and especially RA and PSA. Um, and I am mainly focused on doing meta-analysis, looking at huge effects on clinical trials that you may not get when looking at patient level data because you may not have the data available. You will not have, you will not have available data of 10 or 20 or 50 clinical trials at one time on a patient level data basis. Therefore, we try to extract data from the clinical trials that is on a public domain and do investigate effects of different population effects or drug effects or study effects on the outcome of clinical trials. That is, that is actually what we're doing. And it has been really groundbreaking. Uh, Daniel's been involved in the Boolean remission criteria, the ACR-ULAR combined task force. So it really has been very critically important um, getting all those outcome measures and understanding the, the, the data and clinical trials. Tell us a little bit about the consensus and then tell us a little bit about how you did the systematic literature review. Mm -hmm. So this was a consensus initiated actually by you, Professor Nash and Professor Small. And we, and it was actually initiated in the year 2018 um, and the main problem we had is that before the discovery of Jackinips, we actually had only one drug class to exhibit broad efficacy across many different diseases. And these were TNF blockers. 
And now we had two decades of experience with TNF blockers, but we still had limited experience on JAK inhibitors across different diseases. And therefore the idea was to accumulate all the evidence that's out there in clinical trials and make an evidence-based consensus focusing on all the issues doctors are facing in clinical practice when they use or when they decided to use a check inhibitor. And this task was not only build up of rheumatologists, but we also had a dermatologist and hematologists included in the task force to help us answering that question. And what actually, what we did is, so it was, the, the SLR was actually done in the ULAR way. So we had, we have ULAR standardized operating procedures um, that we followed. And after our first steering group meeting, um, we developed research questions to answer through this SLR. And then a study protocol was developed by the methodologist, which was um, Desiree van der Heide and myself. And we included all the relevant patient populations, interventions, so the different drugs we wanted to look at, um, control groups we think well, we thought that was that were important, and the outcomes that we thought were important. And then, with the help of a database expert, we started to do the search and searched Embase, Medline, the Cochrane Library to include all the studies of all the different diseases. And this was not just RA; this was also PSA ankylosing spondylitis, systemic lupus, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, alopecia, um, and atopic dermatitis. And from the earliest index dates until March 2019, and it's almost a problem with SLRs you have, the time point there, they're published. Actually, the data is already old, but you, that's something you cannot get around with, uh, or we have to get around with. And we're to include, yeah? So tell us, you took all that literature, must have been thousands of articles, but True. you also took um, presentations at ACR, ULA, and meetings and abstracts, because otherwise it would have been very out of date very quickly. True. That's why we also included conference abstracts. Exactly. But it still um, gives you the problem that you have not the possibility to have all the outcomes you, look, you want to look at, you only have certain outcomes available. You cannot do the risk of bias analysis on certain trials as you do not have enough information. Yeah, so that's kind of limited um, data when it comes to data quality, but you have the data available. available um, and I think that's important. And it's such a rapidly moving feast. It just changes. There's new articles all the time. So the cutoff was around the March 2019. Okay. Exactly. So, so tell us a little bit about um, that methodology, that design. Was there PICO questions? Was there a grade analysis? Was there a bias analysis? What did you do? So Euler is actually following the Oxford recommendation. So that we have the Oxford um, certification for the for the level of evidence. We do not we do not think that grade is helping us a lot um, when looking at a smaller amount of evidence in certain diseases that it would lead to only having conditional um, recommendations after all. I think and that's actually what um, Professor Smolin always emphasizes. He does not, he's not very convinced that this helps us a lot when, when summarizing evidence and I'm, I'm fully agreeing um, regarding that. Right. With him. And we- so tell us, Sorry, keep going. 
Yeah. Uh, so um, then you start. So you start off with um, this database search. You have thousands of abstracts available. There were about um, two and a half thousands, and you sc I screened them and extracted about three hundred reports that I thought were interesting and important for our um, questions. And then I get into detail of these um, reports, and seventy-two of them were then finally included for analysis. Um, and we did the risk of bias analysis using the Cochrane collaboration tool for risk of bias assessment. And yeah, actually, that's that's the the method the methodologist's part and methodological part to do. And then and you focus focus a little bit on efficacy and on safety. Yeah, we we mainly looked at if efficacy. There was not that much there for um, safety, so we had to look at the efficacy data we had, especially from randomized controlled trials. And then actually the most of the safety data we had, we had available was from randomized controlled trials. And then we extract also the safety data and long-term extension data and also looked at that. And no, no registry data yet, but that'll be important eventually. So, you know, the papers you rejected what was the problem with them? Why couldn't you use that data? Was it not controlled? Was it not randomized? What was the problem with the reject articles? So um, the problem with reject articles was mainly regarding safety that you have no proper control um, and you or you may have a methodology used. So we, retrospective data is very hard to use um, if you don't have a proper control. This is the main reason when looking at cohort studies um, and when looking at efficacy studies, we only focused on randomized controlled double-blind trials. We were not interested in open-label trials. We were not interest, interested in a cohort of 10 patients investigating one drug without a control group in a rare disease. This is something where you cannot drive much out of it. Fair enough. So tell us a little bit about your findings, mainly on, on the efficacy side, on the safety side. What, what were your findings in the paper? So we had about 72 reports included for the assessment of efficacy. And I think um, there were sec, six check inhibitors that were um, of major importance. This was tofacitinib, this was bericitinib, and pefacitinib, um, upetacitinib, filgotinib and these are not in it. These were the six jacks that were um, widely studied across several diseases. The majority of the data was available for RA um, and the, the efficacy was shown across several diseases. We saw efficacy in RA, in PSA. There were some trials on, already going on in ankylosing spon spondylitis, in SLE, um, a bit of a data in so, psoriasis, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease. And so that was a massive undertaking, really. It was quite some work, yes, especially as you have to focus on different diseases and uh, very heterogeneous outcomes and interpret them in a way that it makes sense to the readership, even if you're not a rheumatologist. And I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a rheumatologist in training. And um, so I I'm kind of used to the outcomes we use in rheumatology, but the biggest major 
difficulty was also understand outcomes that you're not um, really into and that you're not um, speaking fluently, let's say like that. Yeah, it must have been very challenging. Inflammatory bowel disease, atopic dermatitis, that was a real challenge. But you did include experts in each of those fields to get some help, I hope. True. Um, so actually, while doing the, the um, first part, I actually remained on reviewing the literature myself and looking at the data myself. Um, we did include the experts, we did include in the gastroenterologist in the task force as well um, to discuss important questions on Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis during the task force meetings and during the steering committee meetings um, to also include expert opinion on that. Okay, and then um, can you tell us anything about your findings, efficacy findings or safety findings? I think the most important efficacy findings were included in the RA studies. Um, we had quite some studies available for tofacitinib, baricitinib, and upadacitinib. Filgo was just, so filgotinib, the, the trials were just coming up at that time point. And I think the major findings were, um, we were derived from the head-to-head -head studies we had available back then, um, which were our standard and our strategy from tofacitinib. Um, and the RA beam study for baricitinib and select compare for upadacitinib, where TOFA 5 milligrams BID plus methotrexate showed non-inferiority when using um, the ACR outcomes to adalimumab plus methotrexate in oral strategy and buried 4 milligrams as well as UPER 15 milligrams also with concomitant therapy with methotrexate demonstrated statistical superiority to um, adalimumab plus methotrexate. I think this was, these were the main findings and these were the first drugs to show and to be superior in a statistical way um, to, to adalimumab and to an F. To, an to the gold standard, yeah. yeah. So that, that was pretty, I, I think that really established the Jack class moving forward. Now, what about safety signals that stood out, the, the Zoster thing, the VTE thing are big issues around the world. And were you able to get some clarity on that safety side? So I, I very well remember when we were sitting there in March 19, we had, the, I think a week before the safety warning of, of the EMA um, just came out. And actually we were discussing this quite heavily as the data which was available to the, to the regulators, it was not available to us back then. So we, we knew about the VTE issue, but we actually didn't know how they derived the data exactly as we didn't have the data at hand. There was, there were, these were the safety studies um, and the data actually was locked. We didn't have the chance to look at it. Um, so we also included this kind of great literature to derive important um, caveats you, the user or the clinician has to have when, when um, using JAK inhibitors in clinical practice. But we did have data on herpes zoster rates. We knew that uh, zoster rates were higher in um, patients treated with JAK inhibitors. And we also knew that this was especially a problem in the Asian region. Right. And, um... And then I recall there was the, the large consensus meeting where they had representatives from all over the world, um, experts in all the different diseases, 
IBD, psoriasis, patient representatives, um, imaging representatives, methodology representatives, and you presented the SLR to help people come up with the recommendations and the findings. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you mean what, uh, what the SLR concluded? Yes, and, and how the SLR then guided them moving forward. Yes, so the SLR actually, what I did is just present them the data as it is, maybe in a way that helped them to group it and to put it into certain boxes. So we started off with RA, where we had the hugest amount of data available. Um, and then we um, went to PSA and ankylosing spondylitis. And actually, first, we had a huge efficacy part um, where we discussed or I discussed or showed the data of the different clinical trials and across different outcomes. Then we went over to safety, looked at lipids, looked at infection rates, um, also looked at pregnant, potential pregnancies that occurred um, and vaccination studies, which were um, available. So it was a massive undertaking. We congratulate you for the amount of work that you did. Any take home messages from the SLR for rheumatologists in current clinical practice? Um, the take home message is that I think the JAK inhibitors are the second big step in rheumatology um, after TNF blockers. And we see effects beyond TNF blockers. We see if direct effects on pain, very quick onset of the, um, of the, of the clinical um, symptom relief um, and further I think we have a very special safety profile, which brings us into the, we need to um, ask our patients more questions than before regarding the risk profile. Um, I think it has a lot of possibilities also um, for patient, for certain patient preferences, but also for clinician preferences. You can stop the drug um, quite quickly and you do not have to wait um, for two weeks until the drug is gone. Um, and actually, and I think that's the, the most important point with check inhibitors, if they um, get generic, if we get a generic um, check inhibitor, this may be a huge opportunity for low income or poor countries, which have um, a poor um, healthcare system, as you don't, do not have to have a cool chain to, to um, use the drug. You can use the drug in Central Africa and have millions of people um, having a very effective drug available. So that's very promising, isn't it? And uh, it's something we look forward to. And one of the tofus off patent very soon, 22, 24, something like that. So, so that'll be in a whole new world. Um, do you think we need a patient version of the recommendations. That's one of the things I've suggested to Joseph because it seemed to be popular when you did the EULA biologic recommendations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this, I think this, this would be a good idea to do. Um, I think many patients have a lot of questions and I think as patients now are very, very informed about their drugs and want to know more about them, I think it would be a very good idea. 
and also to to inform them about the risks that we doctors face and what we are why we are asking certain questions why we are doing certain blood tests i think it would be a very good idea also to inform patients excellent and lastly before we let you go um do you think with this field moving forward so fast with so many publications when should we update what you've just done huh. next year huh. the year after i think in i think in two i think the problem with updates is if you come up with not many new things um the update is just a lot of work and doesn't add much um, right. I would wait maybe for another one or two years when all the trials are out. Um, there, yes. there is not that much going, maybe there is not that much going on in rheumatology, but there may be a lot of more trials coming up um, in other trials, in other diseases like, um, like atopic dermatitis, for, for example. Um, and yeah. maybe we also have registry data and proper safety data available in about two years. I think this would be a fair amount of time. Excellent. And we might even see a jack-to-jack -jack switch study uh, yeah. in a year or exactly. two's time, which might, which might be interesting. I think these so are we the think... we should really wait for, um, as we then, then really would make sense to update. So we thank you again for your time today, Andreas. We know you're very busy. Uh, this has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and, and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you very much, Andreas. Great to see you and I hope you stay safe in lockdown. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks. <laughs>